KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Last week we began to analyze the thought of the Netzev of Natalia Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, and today we're going to look at his theory of the history of Tarsha Balpeh. And here, before we begin, it's worthy to point out a few of the tensions and dialectics that we have regarding this topic. In terms of Tarsha Balpeh, of course, one question is the relationship between the divine and the human. What if Tarsha Balpeh comes directly from HaKadosh Baruch Hu? What is a product of human creativity? the split between tradition and innovation. We have the split between creativity and truth as well. Right? We have the Torah from Hashem. There's a sense of a definitive quality. Right? One knows that this is the ultimate truth, where once one brings in human beings, so the possibility of error is, is present. At the same time, we have a sense of the value of human involvement and human creativity in the process of Torah. And this also manifests in different modes of learning. Right? We have Psach Halacha. We have a more creative kind of Iyun. These are some of the tensions involved in this topic. And the Nitziv has a tremendous uh, analysis of this in which he traces this, uh, te- these tensions through Jewish history. This anal- analysis appears in his introduction to the Shiltot. The Nitziv, as we mentioned, wrote a commentary on the Shiltot of Rav Achaigon. The Shiltot is a halachic work from the time of the Gonim, Rav Achaigon. And the Nitziv, so to speak, almost uh, put it on the map with his parish, the Hamik Sheila. In his, he has an introduction called the Kidmet HaEmek in which he traces the history of Tarsha Balpet. Before we begin, I'd like to uh, perhaps set the stage with a machloket between the Gonim and the Rambam. The Rambam, in his introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah, quotes a position of the Gonim that really all of Torah was given at Sinai. Now, if all of Torah was given at Sinai, it obviously raises the question, how can we have machloket? We have debates on page after page of the Talmud. So the position the Rambam quotes basically views that as a breakdown in the system. That really, had we remembered everything, we would have had uh, we would not have had machloket. It's only that people, the students, didn't do a good job. Uh, and there's even a Gemara that says that when the students of Hill and Shammai lo shimshu kol tzarkan, Gemara at the end of Sanhedrin, right, lo shimshu kol tzarkan, they did not serve their masters adequately. That's when machloket gets started. And indeed, we certainly see over the course of Talmudic history. Sources that seem to indicate uh, machloket growing over the course of time. In the time of Zugot, machloket was limited. And then over the course of Jewish history, machloket takes off. So the Gaonim basically would view the more human element of Torah as a product of the breakdown of halacha. Right? It was the plan B. Really, it should have all been the tradition we had from Sinai, about all the details. But due to lack of transmission or problems in transmission, we had to use human ingenuity to recover it. And hence, we have machloket where the Rambam uh, vociferously denies this approach. For the Rambam, Tarsh Balpeh does not mean that every detail was given at Sinai. Rather, Tarsh Balpeh means a, a system was given at Sinai, right? Certain fe- basic facts, certain principles, certain methods, and then humans use their best of their thinking to try to work out the halacha. Now, of course, according to the Rambam, Machloket need not be viewed as a breakdown in the system, but rather a fulfillment of the system. Right, that the, it's natural that if human beings use the best of their intellect and their efforts to try to understand the Torah, they will come to different conclusions. It should be pointed out, the Rambam has an interesting, different reading of that Gemara in Sanhedrin, when it says the Talmidim of Shil and Shammai Loshim Shu called Tzarkan. So for the Rambam, the point is as follows, that if one is doing a better job and is intellectually more proficient, there'll be less of a range of opinions. So often when one uh, makes mistakes or one is not precise and one is not as talented, 
that the range of possibilities uh, grows. So for the Rambam, there is still a sense in which, uh, in a more perfect system, there'd be limited machloket, meaning more perfected intellects, and Talmud Chachamim would come to the same conclusion. But when students start to do not such an excellent job, then machloket emerges. However, the Rambam would still say that the human part of Torah is part of the way the system is supposed to work, which is far different than the Gonim. So with this tension in mind, one view of Tarshabah Peh emphasizing the divine, one view of Tarshabah Peh emphasizing, or at least also emphasizing the human, uh, we will now move on to the Nitziv. So this is again the Nitziv in Kidmat HaEmek, his introduction to his commentary on the Shiltot. So the Nitziv begins by saying that there's really two parts of Torah. We have Torah referred to as Eshdat, right? And he says that Esh and Dat refer to two parts of Torah. Dat refers to the basic, what, what one is supposed to do, right? a very simple this is permitted, this is an obligatory, this is problematic, right? Of course, the Pasa, Kedat Malasot, Dat is very practically oriented, very simple answer, where Eish is a much more intricate form of analysis. And he uses the image of uh, sparks coming from a torch, right, in which there's a certain creative gesture that is implicit in the Eish. And he says, the Torah is this combination of Dat and Eish. So right away we should point out that the Nitziv seems to be more in the Rambam's camp than the Gonim's camp in which the human creative element of Tarsha Balpeh is not a breakdown in the system, but it's the way the system was meant to be. And there was always meant to be the dot part and the ish part. And there's an interesting uh, reciprocal relationship between the dot and the ish, which is as follows. As Jewish history progresses, so the ish is the human creative part, and sometimes that is uh, applied to cases that were not included in the dot, but a consensus can emerge over time. And if a consensus emerges over time, so then the ish that part of the Eish has transformed into Dat. I mean, that is no longer a subject to dispute. That becomes a basic halachic fact that is part of the traditional system. The reciprocal relationship works in the other way also, in that the Eish is always working off the Dat. And the Eish is not analyzing in a vacuum, but rather using the ideas and the cases and the rulings of the Dat to either to further the analysis. You have Dat is always inspiring Eish, and Eish, after a period of time, some of Eish turns into Dat. And this is the, the nature of the system for the Nitziv. In fact, later in the Kidamat Emek, he suggests why the Rambam and Shulchan Arach don't cite disputes among the Tanaim. Right, there are many disputes in the Gemara where we look in the Shulchan Arach, we'll only discover one position. So the Nitziv says that's because in those cases, the Eish has already turned to Dat. When the Gemara had this dispute between, let us say, Rabbi Kivan and Rabbi Tarfo, and it was Eish, but by the time we get to the Shulchan Arach, it has become Dat, and there is a given in the halachic system. The Nitziv uses this to explain and solve various problems and to read various sources. For example, the Gemara occasionally uses the phrase gemiri or hilchata gemirila, which some mefarshim take to mean as halachal emosha misinai. Now the Nitziv points out if it's halachal emosha misinai, that normally would mean there's not a pasuk. But halachal emosha misinai is like a brute fact of halacha, not derived from a pasuk, right? The tefillin are supposed to be black, that's Allah Moshe Sinai. It's derived from Sinai, but there's no Pasuk in which it is a reading of, in which it emerges from. Now, the Nitzit points out that occasionally the Gemara will use the phrase Hilchata Gemirila, even about something which we do have a Pasuk. For example, it uses the phrase Hilchata Gemirila about the rules of Safek Tumah Bershut Rabim and Safek Tumah Bershut Yachid. This is the Gemara in Chul and Daftet, even though they are derived from Psukim regarding Sota. The Nitzit explains that Hilchata Gemirila need not mean that it's Allah Moshe Sinai. But rather, Hilchot HaGemirila means that it's already become part of Dat. Hilchot HaGemirila is, this is a received tradition from the time it was decided. 
from the time that the Ace turned into Dot, and that was the decided opinion. But of course, this not, need not contradict the Pasuk because it's not stemming from Sinai. So here we have the Nitziv using this idea to answer a problem. Another famous source says that Moshe Rabbeinu saw, this appears in several Midrashim, Moshe Rabbeinu saw, Komash Talmid Vatik Atid Lachadesh. Everything a student is going to innovate. Now again, one could say this means that Moshe must have seen the totality of Torah. Of course, if one pushes this to the extreme position, it means that every debate between the Ktsos and the Nesivos was already uh, thought of by Moshe Rabbeinu. Where the Nitziv says that's not the way one needs to understand this. That all the Pilpulim aspect of Torah, the more creative part of Eish, that Moshe need not have encountered. But the dot part of Torah, meaning things that are going to turn to dot, that Moshe was already shown. In Moshe was seen kind of the things that will become definitive halacha. But not every creative piece of analysis was necessarily shown to Moshe Rabbeinu. One more uh, text we'll see that the Nitziv does to, uh, the Nitziv uses his theory to uh, explain, and then we'll move on to some other things. There's a Gemara in Gitin, that has a debate whether the Torah is Ruban Bechtav or Ruban Alpet. Is it mostly oral or mostly written? Now, at first glance, this is a very difficult debate, because it seems obvious if one simply looks at Shas and looks at Tanakh, that Torah is obviously Ruban Alpeh. Right? The Torah Shabbat seems to be much more pronounced and much more expansive than the Torah Shabbat So Rashi already there gives a suggestion. When Rashi says, what's the position of Rov Bechtav? Rov HaTarat Fuya B'Midrashik Tuvad L'Midrash B'Chaloprat V'Gzer HaShavah B'Sharmidot Sh'atarat Nidrashik Bet. Right, meaning it doesn't mean that there's more Torah than Torah But within Torah that aspect that is linked to Psukim, compared to that aspect that is divorced from Psukim, there, Rov Beksav means more of Torah is linked to Psukim than that is divorced or independent of Psukim. So this is Rashi's reading the Gemara. The Nitziv gives a different reading of Gemara, in that Ruban Bechtav is not about the Pilpul Chakira creative element of Eish. There, for sure, there is more Tarsha Balpeh than Tarsha Bechtav. But rather, Ruban Bechtav is only addressing the dot aspect of Torah. Because there's the dot that came from Sinai in a written form, and there's the dot that emerges over the centuries. As we've said, Esh can turn into dot. And here, that position would be saying that the dot of Ktav is more, is larger than the dot of Balpeh. But not that Tarsha Bechtav in its totality is bigger than Tarsha Balpeh in its totality. Then, that's the Nitziv. So here, as we've said, we have an interesting theory that seems to combine the uh, divine truth of Torah, Shabal Peh, right, the Dad, and at the same time, the human creativity part of Torah, Shabal Peh, the Ish. The Nitziv also invi- shows or exhibits an interesting historical consciousness in which he says different parts of Jewish history had different emphases. And here I think there's an important point. Within a traditional community, there's often a desire to portray every generation as exactly the same. And certainly we wouldn't want a position that talks about radical shifts in which there's no continuity of our tradition. At the same time, we need not take this position, and certainly different challenges and different generations call for different emphases. And for the Nitziv, the Nitziv is very willing to argue that this was true about the history of Torah Shabbat Pet. So Nitziv begins by first positing that there was a split, that initially we have sources about two different Shvatim that are the teachers, that the Zegman Yuma Chavav, the teachers come from Levi, of course, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Dafei, that Psach comes from Yehuda. And the Nitzvah says they represent these two poles. That Levi is a more simple, definitive answer. And he also throws in there that Levi represents the Kohen and the Mikdash, getting help from the Siyati Dishmai from the Beit Mikdash. There's the sense that one doesn't need to undergo or investigate in a deep analytical fashion to get to the result. That somehow in a more intuitive way, one is able to ride the Psach through Siyati Dishmai. That's Levi. 
Yehuda, on the other hand, represents this more investigative uh, approach, where Yehuda's halacha is actually the halacha that ends up being decided for all generations, where Levi's halacha is more a temporary ruling for the time. And then Nitzit points out, we have other Gemarot where people from Shevi Yehuda seem to uh, exhibit this. Gemar and Tmura has a Tniel ben Knaz using his pulpul to restore lost halachot. Again, a Tniel ben Knaz from Shevi Yehuda would represent this more analytic, creative type of learning and less this intuitive, more straightforward type of learning. Uh, Gemar and Ervin, Daphne and Gimel, says that Shaul was not able to be Gali Mesechta, where David HaMelech was. Where again, for the Nitzid, this means David HaMelech being from Shevi Yehuda, he was able to use his creative analytical powers of reasoning to arrive at a definitive halachal Dorot. Then the Nitziv says that at Shlomo HaMelech, there was quite an interesting transition, which is, till Shlomo HaMelech, he said, Eish was used mostly for areas that were not yet covered, meaning the dot had already covered a certain portion of halacha. We knew what to do. For things we didn't know what to do, for new cases and the like, so we needed to use Eish. We needed to use that kind of creative endeavor to arrive at the answer. Where he says, Shlomo being the Chachami Kal Adam, he was the first to use the age even for the dot, namely to try to work out the analysis and the principles behind the stuff that's already a given. And he quotes a Gemara in Eruvin Chaf Alfam Bet, in which it says that Shlomo made Aznaim le Torah, meaning beforehand it says the Torah was like a kupa. She'en Aznaim, it was like this box that didn't have handles. There's a Gemara in Eruvin and Chaf Alfam Bet. And then at Shlomo and then Shlomo made it gave it handles, which for the Nitziv, the handles it means getting a handle on it, a certain ease of ability to deal with Torah. And he says when you apply the Aish and understand all the principles behind it, this engenders three advantages. First of all, you're not always dependent on a tradition, right? If you don't have the Koach HaPilpoil, then you need the tradition, and in lieu of a tradition, you're in trouble. Second of all, he argues that you'll remember it better. And many of us remember things better when it's not a brute fact, but rather the product of a process of reasoning. Thirdly, we'll be able to deal with new cases. Again, if one is stuck with a Mesora and or dependent on Siyati Dishmaya, so then one has the potential of being unable to apply a ruling to a new case. Where if one is working through Chakira and Pilpul, then one is able to apply it to the new case. So this is Shlomo HaMelech's uh, innovation regarding the applying of Eish Tadat. Okay. Then we move towards the end of Bayat Rishon. Now again, during Bayat Rishon, we have a Beit Magdash, and we have Gilu Shechina, so it's easier to uh, imagine the method of the Leviim, the Koi method, this intuitive psak, this more simple analysis through Siyati Dishmaya, as being prominent. Towards the end of Bayer Rishon, there's a sense that this product, this process, might be beginning to fall apart. And here the Nitziv gives a unique reading of a Gemara in Yuma. There's Gemara in Yuma on Nun Bet Amid Bet, that Yoshio HaMelech being gone is the Aron that the Yoshi Omelech knows that the first Ben Midash is going to be destroyed, and he's nervous about the fate of the Aron, so he hides it away. Now, the simple side of that Gemara might simply be that uh, Yoshio does not want the Aron to be abused or misused somehow. But for the Nitzid, there's a much broader point here, that the Aron represents, again, the Kohen getting the Sati Dishmaya to Paskin. And Yoshio HaMelech understands that with the destruction of the Ben Midash, that's going to come to an end. So Yoshio's hiding the Aron is not just protecting the Aron, but signifying a shift in Jewish history that we're going to move from this more simple, intuitive psaq to a more creative and an analytic psaq, And that's the hiding they wrote. And then the Pasuk in Devarayam, the Gemara quote, says, Ivdu et Hashem Which for the Nitziv, Ivdu et Hashem is saying, okay, that's it. We're not going to have the Aron to rely on anymore. Now we need to increase human effort and, uh, and work to try to understand the Torah, the creative element and the, the human element that's going to become more pronounced now. Now this changes our whole thinking about 
the learning of Bavel. And for Nitziv, Galut Bavel is when there's a real flowering of this kind of more analytic creativity, which of course is manifest in the Talmud Bavli. Now, here you end up with a split between the Bavli and the Yushalmi that we'll come back to. It's well known that the Talmud Yushalmi often has more straightforward readings of the Mishnah and a more simplified analysis, where the Talmud Bavli often has a more intricate analysis, which sometimes even seems more far-fetched in terms of its reading of the Mishnah and the like, which raises the question, how does one evaluate this comparison of the Bavli and the Yushalmi? Now, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Dav Chavdalad, that says, It relates the Talmud Bavli to uh, sitting in darkness, which certainly one could take as a negative comment about the Talmud Bavli. Indeed, Rashi there in Sanhedrin says, Right, they're not at ease, right? They're at f- they're fighting, right? The, uh, the Talmud Chama Bavel are arguing vociferously. And as a result, their learning's in doubt, right? They don't have this definitive conclusion. Right, where maybe in Eretz Yisrael there'd be more clear answer, where in Bava we're kind of groping in the dark. The Nitziv very interestingly reverses the evaluation of that Gemara, in which he says, Bemechshachim Hoshivani is not a criticism of the Bavli. On the contrary, it's part of the greatness of the Bavli, in that it enables one to live in the darkness. Like in one, when one is in Eretz Yisrael, so to speak, in the light, one has the Siati Dishmai in this more intuitive, simple kind of Psak. But when it comes to Bavel, that would not work. But thankfully, thankfully, we have the Talmud Bavli, we have this creative endeavor of learning, and that enables one to live in the darkness. So the Gemara and Sanhedrin actually becomes a praise of the Talmud Bavli rather than a criticism. And the Nitziv uses a very uh, powerful mashal, taken from the Midrash, where he says if one has a, a, one is one's trying to figure out how to get out of a palace. So if one has a candle, so one is a good source of light, so one sees the way out and comes out right away. If one has to grope around... So, of course, one does not get out right away, but arguably one learns more about the intricacies of the palace in all that groping until one finds the exit. So this seems to be the difference between the learning of Eretz Yisrael and learning of Bavel. The learning of Eretz Yisrael has a kind of immediate clarity, which certainly has advantages, but the learning of Bavel might lack that immediate clarity, but ultimately perhaps one has explored all the nuances and the intricacies of the ideas in a more pronounced way. This, of course, also explains contradicted Gemara about the evaluation of Tamirei Babel versus Tamirei Yisrael. which says Chad Minayu Minan. Right, one of them is like two of us, which seems to give a again coming from someone in Babel, which seems to give an advantage to the Chachamim of Eretz Yisrael, which again would be because the certain straightforward quality to their learning, which is admirable and something uh, advantageous, whereas the Gemara Ksuvas Einhe has exactly the opposite. Right, that one of ours in Bavel, when one goes to Israel, becomes better than two of theirs. Again, this is because in Bavel one's acquired this creative kolacha pilpul, which is lacking in Eretz Yisrael. The Nitziv then takes this historical model and argues that these kind of back and forth between the more straightforward kind of learning and the more creative kind of learning continues after, uh, but after continues throughout Jewish history. We've already seen how at the end of Bait Rishon, Yoshi O HaMelech sees the need for it in Gold Bavel. So the Nitziv says that when Bait Shadi started, there was a move to go back to the learning of Eretz Yisrael, a more uh, simplified, intuitive, siyat dishmai kind of learning. And then he argues that in the middle of Bait Shadi, it started to break down. Right? We certainly have a sense that Bait Shadi did not have the presence of divinity in the way that Bait Rishon does. So where Bait Rishon, perhaps, this lasted through Bait Rishon, and Bait Shadi does not last as well. And that's why in the middle of Bait Shadi, we have Hillel. And of course, Hillel is Alami Bavel. Namely, Hill brings the Kocha Pupul from Babel, and he's able to kind of restore or balance or provide this other kind of learning that became necessary in the middle of Bayat Sheni. 
Then the Nitziv argues that this continues afterward. If we look in the Psakim we have from the Gonim, the Gonim seem to not have such complex and intricate analysis, a much more straightforward kind of Psak. And the Gonim were kind of going back to the more straightforward learning. And here it's clear that the Nitzivs break down the split between more straightforward and more intricate does not always divide a on Bavel Eretz Yisrael type lines. Right? We already saw in Baicheni that Hillel brought this kind of learning to Eretz Yisrael. Conversely, here in the period of the Gonim, obviously living outside of Eretz Yisrael, yet they revert back to this more simple kind of psak, and he explains that for based on historical factors. Right, the Nitziv writes, they do some simple paths. I mean, this is their talent in this area to give straightforward answers. Right, they knew exactly what the should be. Therefore, they didn't use the more pilpul. Also, they had persecutions, meaning it's a combination, perhaps, of the ideal and the concession to uh, the reality, the historical reality of their time. And due to the persecutions, they weren't really able to develop the Koch And of course, when one goes from the Gonim to the Rishonim, the Nitziv has the Tosvot, again being this more creative gesture. Right? It's well known that the Tosvos, in their attempt to reconcile the totality of Shas, are a tremendously creative force and uh, bring all kinds of new analyses to Talmudic discourse. Where for the Nitziv, the Tosvos of France are going back to the other aspect of Torah uh, Peh. Right, this more creative Asia aspect that was necessary at the time. And then the Nitziv goes on, I'm not going to do this in great depth here, but uh, the Rambam, he has more in a Gonim type approach, a more straightforward kind of learning, where he then actually talks about why he wrote the Shiltod, which often he thinks that the Rambam might be working off a Gonic source that we're not aware of, and or working off Medrashe Halacha that we're not aware of. And indeed, this is something the Nitziv was quite interested in. As we mentioned, the Nitziv wrote a commentary on the Sifri. And the Nitziv here also writing a commentary on the Shiltod, some of it is trying to find, uh, restore this Gonic tradition, right? This more straightforward kind of sock and where, what the Rambam might have been working off. And here, the Nitzir, that's really, they have this introduction, explains why he's writing this work. Now, there's some more interesting things here that I'll do very briefly, because I want to mention three other things in the Nitzir. The Nitzir actually has to, feels a need at the end here to justify why he wrote the work. So he actually says that he sent it to his son, to his son, Rav Chaim Berlin, for Harot, and Rav Chaim Berlin sent it back with Harot, and that got lost. And Nitziv was actually nervous that somebody else would take it and perhaps steal his chidushim and claim it as his. And then it seems that that justified his publishing, his uh, commentary on the Shilter at this point in time. He also thanks his son, Rechaim Berlin, and his son-in-law, Rufal Shapiro, and some of his rabbeim for their efforts. But this is basically the first section of the Kidmat Ha'imek, the Nitziv's introduction to the Shilter. Now, the Nitziv returned to this theme in another place, actually in several places in his commentary on Chumash. And here there's a very profound reading, I believe, uh, a quote from the Ibn Ezra in Shemot Lamedalot. Shemot Lamedalot Perak Aleph, of course, has the formation of the second Luchot. Right. Fine, so the second Luchot. And here, there seems to be Moshe's involvement, Psalacha. Moshe is going to be involved in the engraving of these Luchot. So the Ibn Ezra there, both in his Parish Arach and Parish Katzer, Quotes the Gaon, the Rav Sadigon. The Yom Hagon ki Ashneim nichbadim erishonim b'shevad rachim. Right, the Rav Sadigon says that the second set of luchot is somehow more exalted than the first set of luchot, and he starts going through a whole list of reasons. Right, for example, the second set of luchot has three britot. Right, where the first luchot lacks that. And then it's the Ibn Ezra is very negative about this position, and he says, "How can you say this such a thing?" Right, ki. 
then he goes on to say, right, the first one is created by God. God fashioned them. And the second one was engraved by Moshe. And how could it be that? So the Ibn Ezra rejects this position. It can't be. And indeed, some of the Gonim's proofs seem a little weak. It's true that three Britot are established on the second set of Luchot, but that's precisely because there's a Cheda Egil in between. One might argue this is not an inherent superiority of the second Luchot, but having after Cheda Egil had happened, it was necessary for those Britot. So one needs to justify exactly what the Gon was thinking. So the Nitziv says that this is precisely the point, based on his uh, analysis we've already seen in the Kidman and Amek. Again, this is the Nitziv in Hamik Davar, Shmot Lamedalat Aleph. And Nitziv says that Cheda uh, Egel is really one of the sources of Galut. As we say, beyond Pakti Vakadati, the idea is that later punishments are also hearkening off Cheda Egel. And it's really not just Cheda Maraglim that is the cause of the extended stay in the Midbar, but it's Cheda Maraglim plus Cheda Egel. Once Cheda Egel becomes the symbol or perhaps one of the causes for exile, so certain things are needed to combat the exile, to survive in the exile. And we've already seen how the Nitziv says that the Talmud Bavli, this more creative kind of Tarsh was n- crucial for survival for the ongoing halachic tradition when one lacked the Siat Dishmaya of Eretz Yisrael. And here for the Nitziv, that's exactly what's going on here, that the first Luchot represent the more simple kind of learning. And here the Nitziv says that would be both the, the traditional facts and analogy. I mean, it's not that's the first kind of learning, the dot was only was only repetition, but it was repetition and a more limited form of creativity. Right? Anything new came up, you just try to figure out which case it was most like. It was all, tra- it was all tradition, repetition, and analogy. Where the second kind of learning is a more creative kind of learning, where the human intellect is left to, to roam in a more free way, of course, again, working within the system of the tradition. Now, for the Nitziv, the Cheda Egel forces, which is the, causes Galut, forces this move to the second kind of learning. So the first Luchot represent the more simple kind of learning. <coughs> And the second Luchot represent this more intricate and complex kind of learning. And, of course, this fits in with Psalacha. Moshe's active involvement in forming the Luchot is, of course, a symbol for the human involvement in Tarshav Alpeh, that the human involvement grows. That's why the first Luchot are the Masei Hashem in total, where the second Luchot involved this greater endeavor of Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's perhaps what the Gon was getting at. And here the Nitzivs is an important split, which could have other implications. So there might be a difference between what's more Kadosh and what's more Mechubad. Kedushah, sanctity, has to do with its connection to the Ribbon Shalom. Hashem is the source of sanctity. So the more connected to Hashem something is, the more Kadosh it is. Therefore, says the Nitziv, the first Luchot would be more Kadosh than the second Luchot. But the Gon was not using the phrase more Kadosh. It was using the phrase more Mechubad. Mechubad might be more necessary, more exalted in a different sense. Here, the second Luchot are more Mechubad than the first. And the Nitziv says this is true about the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yushalmi as well. Talmud Yushalmi might be more kadosh, it stems from Eretz Yisrael, it might be more simple or perhaps even closer to the truth, where the Talmud Bavli might be more mechubad, it's more necessary, it gives greater expression to the human involvement and human creative gesture in Torah, which is needed to survive in the Galut. So here the Nitziv again uh, uses this split about uh, the two types of Torah where each one has its advantages to explain several sources and explain our attitude to the Bavli Yushami. It's interesting to note that one of the Nitziv's famous students takes this in a somewhat different direction. Okay, Rav Avram Yitzchak Cook, of course, learned in Velazhin, 
and there the Nitziv was the Rosh Yeshiva. And he also talks about the difference between Torah Eretz Yisrael and Torah Bavel. If one's interested in a very nice analysis of the difference between the Nitziv and Rav Kook, so Professor Yaakov Blitzstein has an article in a book called Eretz Yisrael, Hagod Eretz Yisrael Beit HaChadasha, where Professor Blitzstein points out, he goes to the Nitziv, and he also talks about a contrast to Rav Kook. And Rav Kook in the Agrot has a letter to Rav Yitzchak Isaac Halevi. This is the Agrot Chelek Aleph, Igeret Kuv Gimel, where he again talks about this difference, where Eretz Yisrael is a more intuitive kind of learning, right? Rav Kook indeed envisions the return of prophecy in the return to Eretz Yisrael. And there, there one doesn't need to have the Pilpul Mabavel. But in Rav Kook, it sounds like that somehow that's an ideal that we should strive to get back to. Right, with a certain advantage given to the Torah Eretz Yisrael, where the Nitziv doesn't say better or worse, but it seems like there's a certain sympathy with the Torah of Bavel. So it's an interesting split here. Both would understand this split between Bavel and Yisrael the same way, but there might be a difference in how one evaluates the two vis-a-vis each other. Okay, there's also another interesting Nitziv in the Harchiv Dover and Dvarim, Perak Aleph Pasuk Dal, again, not in the Hamik Dover, but in the footnote in the Harchiv Dover, where he points out that another difference between the two types of learning, that the uh, Limud of Pilpul depends on uh, a chabura, depends on bouncing your ideas off one another. Where the Limud of Eretz Yisrael, again, it's more like uh, the Kohen gets this Siat of and is able to give a more intuitive and more simple psak, but that doesn't depend upon so much on the interchange. So the Torah Bavel would depend more on the back and forth between uh, different scholars. And indeed, that goes back to what we pointed out in that Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about the Tamidim of Bavel arguing with one another which again, one can take that negatively, as Rashi seems to, since they're too busy, too busy arguing, they don't really arrive at definitive conclusions, where for the Nitziv, it would all be part of his positive reading, right? The, that creative endeavor of human learning, so that is the learning of Bavel, and it goes together with the need for a Chavura, the need for Chavruto, the need for others. And it seems that we have a nice uh, dialectic here, which can inform our thinking about Torah in general, and Tarshav Pen in particular, that certainly we need some kind of combination of divinity and the human, but on the one hand, uh, we don't want to. We would avoid a position in which sees Torah as really just all being a human product, right? The Torah is the authority of Torah is grounded in it being the Word of God, the Divine Word. At the same time, Hashem chose to uh, enable humans. Humans give us a special privilege to take a part in the formation of Torah. And that indeed is uh, the other part of Torah, both the Esh and the Dat.